Greetings. Welcome back to another Truth Factor discussion. We'd like to welcome to our study this morning. We are continuing in Paul's letter to the churches throughout Galatia. We're going to be picking up in Galatians chapter 2 here in a couple moments. It's good to have most of the guys with us today. Paul, remember Paul Adams? He's back with us today. But we give him a little bit of slack because, you know, he had something pressing last week. Paul, you want to talk about that for a moment? For just a moment, uh, if you'll indulge me. uh, Our uh, youngest daughter made us grandparents for the very first time. Uh, Her, uh, Hannah, and her husband, Dylan, are the proud parents of a baby boy who was born a week ago, uh, 10.21 p.m. last Thursday. He was six pounds. He is. Well, I don't know what he is today, but I haven't checked in. Six pounds, 10 ounces, uh, 19 and three-quarter inch long. Uh, and he is just, in our estimation, perfect. And uh, mom and baby are healthy. And I was at the hospital because things were going a little rough uh, for my daughter. And so we, uh, I was not here last week. And I can go back several weeks and give excuses for each week. But I'll make it a moment, but now it's fine. And say it's okay. Sorry about that. Paul, that is wonderful news. We are so happy for you. Happy for you and your wife, and especially your daughter and her husband. It's great. His name okay, is so what's that? His name's Mason. Mason Dean Pertlewall. Okay, awesome, awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and jump into our study. We're picking up in Galatians chapter two this morning. Kind of a, a if you want to kind of put this in timeline with uh, Paul's or with the book of Acts. Um, you'll note there as we bring the text up here in a minute that the reference would be about Acts 15, 1 through 21 is where that kind of places it. We've been doing some discussing over the last couple of weeks about how Galatians kind of lines up with Acts 11 through 15, Paul's first journey, and then leading up to the um, discussion they had in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 regarding the Gentiles. And so there's kind of an overlap of this kind of helps us better. Matter of fact, this letter helps us to better understand possibly um, the things that they talked about in Acts 15. But I'll tell you what's interesting about this, and we'll get get on to our study. When you look at Acts chapter 15, and we may have talked to this when we studied through Acts, um, the information they concluded, you know, the, the concluding, here's what we say to the Gentiles. Well, I probably shouldn't bring this up. Yeah, let me go talk about it for a minute. I've often wondered, was that revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, or was it just based on what they had already been taught by the Holy Spirit? You're saying the decisions that they came to in Acts 15? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. They say that the Holy Spirit, they'll make the statement, the Holy Spirit revealed these things to us. But what's really interesting is that the conclusions are reached by looking at commandments and looking at examples and making some necessary inferences. And yet they'll say that's the direction of the Holy Spirit. So that's actually a very interesting observation, John, because it's it's a, a really important thing for us to understand how to accurately handle the word of truth, that whenever we come to a conclusion based on these kinds of principles, we, we have a confidence it's actually the Holy Spirit, because uh, in Acts chapter 15, they'll actually make the statement that the Holy Spirit is the one who is uh, making these assertions. So, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah, based right. on what the Holy Spirit had already given them, and so right, therefore the right. the truthful conclusion does come from the Holy Spirit. Then, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, and and another thought that I have on that 
is if it came directly from the Holy Spirit, why'd they even need to get together? Yeah. Well, it's because yeah, the mean, people in people in Jerusalem. Let me think about this for a minute. They caused the problem. They they fundamentally they did um, because yeah. of their Judaizing teachers going upward. Probably went up to Antioch because it was um, Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were when all this began to develop there. Um, and so they had to go down to Jerusalem and have people call it a conference. I really don't think it was. I think it was the big meeting to say, guys, we need to get on the same page. What is the Lord's will regarding the Gentiles? And by this yeah. point, Paul had already received the message and the teachings from the Lord. You know, but if someone yeah. doesn't listen to one person, you've got to get you've got to come together and reason together from the scriptures to have a better understanding. Right. And furthermore, yeah. they went to the source of the problem. I, I, I mean, it was uh, that that was I think that was the whole point of it is, is Jerusalem is where the problem happened. And if they didn't deal with it in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's where the church began, if they didn't deal with it in Jerusalem, that's where a lot of the apostles were. There was going to uh, there was going to be more there's going to be more problems than there were. Uh, I mean, even when Jerusalem dealt with it properly, it didn't solve the problems. No. So. I really appreciate what Brian said there about how they arrived at their decision, because I think uh, I've I've read some books on, on authority and you know, they often say things like, you know, it's long been accepted or we've always known or something like this. I don't think that's a good answer. I think looking to scripture about how they arrived at the understanding, a mutual understanding uh, and reasoning from the scriptures using those methods mm -hmm. using that uh, if we could even say hermeneutic uh, that that's not just uh, something that we have ascertained uh, we, we have deduced uh, but that's something that we see used in scripture in multiple places that's right yeah i, I really right. appreciate that brian yeah now, All right, let's now see. one thing i'll say oh, mm -hmm. uh john is that i do take the observation, uh, I actually think that maybe the events of Galatians 2 are actually not the events of Acts 15, but they're the events of Acts chapter 11. Now, it doesn't really change oh, much. Right. I mean, we're not we're, we're not going to have much of a, you know, it doesn't create any, you know, uh, difference in how we look at the text. Um, my supposition is that when Paul says in Galatians 2 that they went to Jerusalem based on a revelation, I'm thinking that's the revelation of Agabus in Acts chapter 11, when Agabus reveals that there's coming a famine and Paul and Barnabas are sent from Antioch to Jerusalem in order to um, make this uh, uh, make this determination uh, about the rebel, you know, to bring funds. I'm sorry, to bring funds that were collected. Um, and so when he's there, he'll he'll seek out with the other apostles and make sure his you know he's preaching, not preaching in vain. Um, I think you know my 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 then thought is that after Acts chapter 13, we see or Acts chapter 12, we see. Peter fleeing Jerusalem at the end of that chapter. Um, it doesn't say where he goes, but I've often considered maybe he went to Antioch, um, you know, which would make sense as probably the largest hub of, of Christians after Jerusalem. And so that's his coming to Antioch that Paul mentions a little further on in Galatians chapter two. Now, again, it's, uh, well, I'm just connecting a few different things. And if somebody says, well, I think really we're talking about Acts 15, um, Maybe, you know, there's two times where Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15. So um, 
you know, and uh, both times they've already been preaching to Gentiles. So there's a, you know, there's already a, a background of preaching to Gentiles. I, I kind of like a, it being a little earlier, though, because uh, for one thing, it helps me to see that, you know, that the events in Acts chapter 15 are a lot more. This is already, you know, um, you know, they've already converted quite a few Gentiles for this to have a significant uh, impact. So. And even more so, they should have known better. I think we yeah, talked right, about this right. some last week. I forgot about that. We've talked about the, the difference between Acts 11 and 15 possibly being the time frame of this. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Good point. All right, well, let's go ahead. And since Paul is, has decided to join us today, let's go ahead and start with Galatians chapter 2, Paul, if you would. And read, let's go ahead and read the first five verses, kind of get into it that way. Okay, I'll go ahead and read from the New King James Version, and it's Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And uh, there, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. All righty. All right, so let's take a few minutes here and kind of look at this first section here with this. Of course, as a first section, Paul's actually continuing from the previous, as we call it, chapters for the chapters of vision for us there. But he's continuing the history there of his his development, if you would. And um, he talks about him coming to Jerusalem with Barnabas, took Titus with him also. And verse 2 is very interesting and very important because he makes a statement there. And let's bring it up again. He says, now went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputations. Paul, um, the idea here that Paul says, and I went up by revelation, and he communicated primarily or privately to those who have reputation. What are your thoughts on that? What, what would have been the purpose for Paul going to a select few first when he comes up to Jerusalem? Um, maybe so as, uh, to not create some stir of it's me against them, uh, kind of thing that those who are of a great reputation, uh, why don't we get this, uh, since they, since the people are going to listen, uh, to that person, uh, maybe just to be able to talk it through, to be able to, uh, well, he went up by revelation. And so I'm taking that to mean that the Holy Spirit told him to go. Uh, and so he went, and as he went uh, and he shared that message, uh, he wanted to make sure that um, that they were all in, in agreement, all understanding the same thing. Um, not that not so much they were in agreement, that they all were speaking the truth and uh, not to uh, cause a, some kind of a undue controversy. You know, things are so much better worked out 
when brethren can do things that way, when they can yep. sit down and if they disagree, they can talk about uh, whatever difference there is. They can study the scripture to find out what's right. And that way that they're, uh, as uh, other passages say, uh, that they're speaking the same thing. They, they have the same mind. And so I, that, that's just a real fundamental approach to, to that passage. Okay. One quick thought by comparison, the, the Legacy Standard Version, and I, may, I imagine the ESV would be similar, and I went up because of a revelation and laid out, uh, the, laid out to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. So, yeah. Yes, uh, ESV does say that. I went up because of a revelation and set before mm-hmm. them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And so, yeah. Uh, I think the wisdom it really was it was behind his choice here, and we'll, yes. we can talk about yeah. that. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, you, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, going along with that, I, I, this is the way to deal with the problem. You know, I, I mean, it, it goes back to Matthew eighteen. You know, uh, you know, minimize it as much as possible. I mean, uh, imagine going to Jerusalem and just blindsiding even the leaders. You know, w- w- without getting the details first. By by go by going to the leaders, um, Paul could discuss with them. You know what? And when he finds out that they are on the same page, and this text is pretty clear that they are, you know, they're on the same page. Then they can deal with it congregationally or or on on a larger scale. And there's agreement behind it, as opposed to a like I said, a blindsiding um, kind of a thing. I mean, that, how often does that really accomplish a lot of good? You know, I mean, it typically does misinformation. I mean, what is the favorite tactic of, I say, a, uh, I, I say a dishonest politician? <laughs> I, I mean, I think one of the favorite uh, tactics, and I, I think it's dishonest, is the September surprise or whatever they call it, the October surprise, you know, where where they they blurt out something that's damaging where the op- the opponent doesn't have enough time to uh, adequately respond. It's dishonest. Uh, I mean, it, it's not winning honorably. And so Paul going to the leaders, you know, first of all, he gets it clarified. And then secondly, he, you know, I mean, uh, they're, they're on the same page when they take it more public. Okay. Can you imagine what it would have been like? If, and we're now I'm, I'm making the assumption when he talks about he goes to them and communicates to them about how he took the gospel to the Gentiles. He's talking about the congregation, you know, not the synagogue of the Jews, but yeah. he's talking about the congregation. Can you imagine what it would have been like if Paul had popped in on the, the first worship assembly after he got into town and they said and said to all of them there, let me tell you what God has done? You know, there it would have calls, I would have thought would think it would cause a major uproar and might have hindered the overall message that he was trying to get across. But by going to the private individuals first, one who of more reputation amongst, kind of like think about going to the elders of the congregation, you know, maybe yeah. if you would, then lay the foundation for them first. That way, when the congregation hears about it, they are not, well, you already used the term, Paul, I think, or Tom, they're not blindsided. They're not caught off guard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he clearly says in the last part of verse two, you know, lest yeah. by any means I might run or had run in vain. Uh, I exactly. mean, I, I'm, I, I, Paul's, 
Paul's just got this attitude. I want to do as much good as I can, you know, and I'm willing to hold my tongue. I'm willing to be all things to all men, whatever I have to do, that's going to be the most good without compromising. I'm willing to do that. And so he uses wisdom uh, in dealing with problems. And I, this is just an example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got a comment in the in YouTube side. So let's bring that in. And um, let's see what, well, you know what? Let's go to Mr. Brian and see what Brian, Brian, you have that comment handy. Would you like to read that? I sure do. So Gregor Hinckley says, does this trip and approaching the leadership or eldership indicate Paul recognizes the local authority? That's a really neat question, in part because it 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 seems to be, you know, and of course, there's a question here. Is Paul an apostle yet? Um, you know, at, at Galatians one, it kind of hinted that maybe he was an apostle in some ways all along. Um, I sometimes think maybe Acts 13 is talking about when he becomes an apostle. So is he an apostle yet or not? But if he was an apostle, the fact that he goes to meet the local church leadership is significant because it's it's kind of a sense of acknowledging their oversight in the matters of that local church. Um, so that would be a very, very, very interesting observation for us, that although the apostles had an authority in the universal church that nobody else did, um, they're not usurping the local authority that uh, oversight does. And that's who we're presuming James is. Um, although it, if if this is Acts chapter 11, then James the Apostle is still alive, but it's almost certainly James, uh, because of the timeline as it goes on, um, that James is probably the brother of Jesus, who's identified as one of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. So it's a very interesting question, and it does kind of lead us to think that perhaps Paul does recognize the the authority of the local congregation as something to submit to. One other comment I wanted to bring out was that Paul is suggesting that perhaps in verse 3, that perhaps the big concern he has is over the matter of circumcision. Um, and I, I just don't think, I, I think that's fundamentally, I think that's actually the, the book of Galatians, what it's dealing with. Uh, I think yeah. the idea of the other gospel is circumcision. He's going to say that in chapter 5. He's going to come back to circumcision again. Um, but the idea of whether or not it's required or it should be required or could be made required that if we add anything to the gospel, we've created another gospel. But in this case, it's circumcision. Now, what I think is interesting is that this we, we just don't appreciate how big a deal this was or how big a question this is, that uh, this was something that for a lot of people was a fundamental truth of what uh, uh, of a person who was righteous before God bore this mark in their flesh, so to speak, you know, that they they uh, they actually had this uh, circumcision so that they could point to it. And the question is, is this something that everybody needs to do? You know, it's interesting that Jesus never talked about that. You know, Jesus, there's a lot of conversations about the Sabbath in uh, in Jesus's ministry. There are conversations about clean and unclean things, but circumcision never comes up. And I've always thought that's interesting because then when you look at Paul's writings, circumcision is, is, is the subject of about a third of them, where he's trying to convince people to understand things about that better. So I think that what's interesting is that the the, the concern Paul has, and, and I like what Tom just said. Tom made the point that Paul's concern 
is one of humility. Maybe I've not been doing this right. Maybe I'm not correct on this. So I want to make sure I understand it. So uh, if that's the case, then his going to them to say, hey, I want to make sure I'm on the right page on this is a really, um, Paul, you know, like Tom said, Paul's a man who his own salvation is important too. You know, and, and we we always want to remember that, that uh, lest, you know, the person that preaches the gospel, lest they should be the ones disqualified themselves, that, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, we have to be mindful of that. And Paul would tell the Corinthians, he would buffet his body daily, uh, lest he be disqualified. So so there's a significance of that statement uh, to that end. But I, but I wouldn't want to lose sight that in verse three, mm-hmm. the biggest concern is, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? And he explains in verses four and five why that's a matter of contention, that it's already come up. Either this is the Acts 15, one and two uh, statements about men coming up from Jerusalem, or this is something prior to that, you know, whichever one it is, it's a it's an interesting point. Well, um, two thoughts on that. First off, um, let's let's talk about circumcision first. In verse number three, it's almost like he's laying the foundation for the an illustration of the problem. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, you know, and that kind of hints at who was trying to compel him. Let's talk about that and why did Titus not feel compelled to be circumcised. The other thing is, going back to the comment about the elders there, this is early. So we know in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas will appoint elders on the return trip of the first journey. It's interesting that he didn't refer to these individuals as elders. You know, that he didn't say, and to, those, and, and to the elders, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So I don't know. I, I don't know. There's probably no significance to that. But it's just interesting, going back to Gregor's question, that Paul didn't use that particular term that he would later use when writing specific letters to specific churches. Yeah. Now, and in Acts 15, it's interesting. In Acts 15, it will talk about the elders. Uh, being the people in Jerusalem, but in Acts 11, um, I don't believe it does. Um, no, it's, I'm sorry, it does. Uh, in Acts 11 and verse 30, it also mentions the elders being the ones that they go to. So, so uh, uh, yeah, I guess there probably were elders at that time, but, you know, so whether, whether this is earlier in Acts 11 or it's Acts 15, both instances refer to elders. Well, and I wouldn't be opposed to the thought that maybe not all the elders were included in that conversation since he said, in other words, he went and picked the ones that he knew he could talk to and communicate the idea to, and then they would teach the others. But and that's that a sheer it, guess, you know. It wouldn't be a local church issue. I mean, this is the Apostle yeah. Paul, or this is Paul Granted. preaching to Gentiles in Antioch. That's not something yeah. that the church in Jerusalem oversaw, but that is something that the apostles in their authority would have some say-so about. So yeah. that's interesting because we oftentimes think of Acts 15 as being the no Acts 11 is the first time this issue is brought up regarding Gentiles being converted because it talks about Cornelius and so Acts 15 would really be the second time in written record that it's being dealt with locally. So, oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Any thoughts or comments from the chat room? By the way, Brendan finally showed up in spirit of sorts. He is away and unable to be with us this week. And of course, the time that he pops in here, Paul chooses to show up. I don't think I don't think there's anything between Paul and Brendan that you know animosity like like Paul and Barnabas, but you just I don't never. like him. Yeah. <laughs> no. 
I was going to say it's kind of like Superman and Clark Kent. I've never seen them together in the same place. So, yeah, let's not insult Brendan that way. So, but no, uh, I always appreciate Brendan. I was just joking. Well, speaking of Brendan, he says Acts 15 is probably, probably has to do with the false teachers coming from the congregation, which those elders had charge over. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, that would have been based on everything that we're reading. That's where they were coming from there in Jerusalem. Yeah. All right. Good point. Good point there, Brendan. All right. Let's see. Um, okay. So let's, let's tie what Brendan just said with verse four real quick. So there in verse four, he makes, Paul makes a statement there. By the way, I made the font a little bit bigger for you people at home. So hopefully it's a little bit easier to read. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in. Then he says, who came in by stealth to spout our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So there, there seems to be a kind of a thought here that raises a question, were these false teachers part of the local congregation? Is Paul saying that they basically became Christians so they might figure out a way of using this new doctrine against the believers of the doctrine or try to figure out a way to get them to submit to the law of Moses while still professing a belief in Christ? But either way, he kind of ties this, his description here kind of fits with what Second Peter, what Peter writes, Second Peter chapter 2, regarding their, their intent and their design. Uh, any thoughts about that? Okay. Well, we've always got thoughts, but, uh, um, I, you know, it's interesting you say, what does this mean? Um, I, I would suggest that the concept of being a false brother, you know, as you said, it could be Second Peter 2, that there's an intention of somebody who says, hey, I'm going to come in and I, I'm going to, I want my own way. I want power. Second uh, mm-hmm. Thessalonians 2, I want to take the place of God in the church. Um, but I, I almost believe that there could simply be a genuine, and this is based on what I see others, you know, um, the fact that Paul and, or that Barnabas and Peter and others going to kind of get caught up in some of this kind of stuff here in a couple of verses. I, I can't help but to think that maybe false brethren is merely brethren who aren't accepting the whole truth. So that in other words, mm. um, you know, the very thing that Paul's going to accuse Peter of here shortly, that you just, you know, you can't just take pieces of the gospel and say, I like this part. Uh, I'm going to bring my own part over here. You, It's a whole, it's an all or nothing, uh, add nothing to it, take nothing away from it kind of prospect. And I think that, that in the context, perhaps anyone who's coming to the gospel and saying, yeah, I like everything but this part, you know, or I like this all, but I'm going to add this to it, becomes a false brother, um, that they're not, they're not truly in fellowship with Christ, that, that their fellowship with Christ is false. And, and then it doesn't necessarily have to speak to their intention as with maybe the false teacher, the false prophet, you know, you you have these four terms in the Bible: false brother, false prophet, false teacher, false Christ. Um, you know that, and I think each one might be a little different. I think each one is not—they're mm. not synonyms, and I think that they speak to different ways of of deception. But I think ultimately, the false brother could be somebody who deceives themselves, um, because you know, otherwise they'd be called a false teacher, I think, or they'd be called uh, something else. I think the false brother is self-deceived. I think they're the ones that John would say. Uh, the truth is not in them. You know, you deceive yourself. Okay. Well, the ESV and the Legacy Standard Bible says false brothers. 
you know, in the wording, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. That's interesting. Yeah, interesting you know, point, Brian. Yeah, you know, we actually, I think we discussed this a week, week or two ago, you know, making the observation that when the church first began, there was great peace. Um, and there was all kinds of agreement until all of a sudden something came along that they didn't like. And, uh, and 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 so you, you could have brethren that were perfectly fine, you know, following Christ as the Messiah, and they were doing everything great until that one issue uh, reared its head. And by the way, that happens. You, you, you know, somebody obeys the gospel, um, and they become a part of the congregation, and they become a flourishing part of the congregation, and all of a sudden you preach on something. Or or you bring up something in class, and it just hits that raw nerve, and they're not willing to change that. They all of a sudden find themselves in that wrong situation, and uh, they change. And they they go from being a true brother to a false brother, you know, be, be, because they've demonstrated an unwillingness to repent with whatever it is in their life so, you know the illustration would be the rich young ruler you know uh oh i i kept the law i've kept it all my life well you know what are you covetous do you love your money more and all of a sudden that was the one thing that was the one thing and he left sorrowful so i can i can kind of see that in this a trigger something yeah, triggers uh, yeah. that yeah That's yeah the gentiles point. was yeah. a trigger uh, you know i mean this yeah. is jerusalem this is Jerusalem where they hate Gentiles. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't judge for everybody, but uh, they despise Gentiles. They despise Samaritans, you know, and, yeah. and, and those kinds of things. And so all of you mean I got to accept them? So Well, com- com- yeah. compare this, although it's a little bit different. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith, how he was triggered against Paul. You know, a little bit different. But go ahead, Brian. No, I was going to say, Tom, that's fantastic. That's a really neat observation because, you know, I imagine that church in Jerusalem for years, probably nobody worked on Saturday. And for years, nobody ever had a ham sandwich. And for years, you know, there were just probably a lot. I mean, it seems like Peter is kind of like, hey, I've never been to a Gentile's house, you know, years later. Um, so, So I think what Tom said is profoundly significant for two reasons. Number one, it reminds us that the content of the church in Jerusalem was unique. Um, that they were they were mostly or all Jews, and so that was kind of the people they were comfortable with, which we all get this way. You know, congregations all across the country get this way. We get uh, we get in certain practices or traditions that we're comfortable with, and um, something comes along and shakes that, and 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 we might create a doctrine that says, well, now we have to stick with how we know it. Um, conversely, I think that the other thing that that really Tom is hitting on that that really strikes me, yeah, profoundly significant. Um, you know that the the big idea here, though, is that it's it's the challenge for all of us to be considering these things and to 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 constantly be renewing our minds and understanding better the things that things that we see here. Yeah. So I distracted Brian. I was playing with his profoundly significant description of. Tom's statement. It was good. It was good. <laughs> I didn't know we used such eloquent phrases here at Truth Factor. Yeah. Anyway, we do have a comment oh, to bring oh, in. Oh, John, do you mean such yeah. profound phrases? That's right. We use profound phrases that profoundly 
significantate our viewers' lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. So. All right. I don't know how to transition to the comment with what Tom just said, but Caleb Davis put rights in, and this is a good point. It says it shows the attitude we should all have when studying the Bible. If we have a belief, maybe from something we learned as a child, but is not true in God's word, then we must change. That's the challenge. And that's a very good point. You may not even know the difference is really there because you've not heard it until one day the preacher touches on it in the sermon and you're like, what? I mean, and the trigger begins. And depending on your attitude will determine how you respond to that. He goes on to say, especially for many coming out of denominations and their traditions. You know, that's a very valid point and has happened many times as part of the growing and learning process of one trying to, you know, uh, as a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And then uh, let's see. Okay, any thoughts about that before we move on then to um, the next section here? I thought there was one other thing. Yeah, okay, so we read down through verse 5, and I stopped, we, we stopped there. Let me bring back up my New King James translation real quick. So going back to verse 3, um, Paul, let's, let's kind of touch on this one more time. He uses Timothy as an example of not being allowing himself to be pressured to be circumcised, but it looks like the pressure just wasn't on, not Timothy, pressure was, wasn't just on Titus, but even on Paul himself to go along with the law of Moses. Would that kind of what you see in verse 5? Yeah, I think uh, there's a powerful message here about uh, those who would compromise the truth, uh, those who would go for uh, adding requirements to the law, those who would, I mean, adding requirements to the gospel or taking part of the gospel away. Uh, Paul says that for those who would try to steal our freedom uh, to bring us into slavery, um, he is emphatic uh, in the language there. We didn't, it's not just we did not yield submission, but we did not yield submission. Uh, the New King James says, even for an hour. Uh, the ESV says, even for a moment, uh, we did not yield submission. So as you look there, uh, Paul says, uh, you cannot have the spirit of compromise with the truth of the gospel. Uh, and so, uh, because he says that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The purity of the gospel is of that high of an importance that you cannot compromise on it, not for any length of time. Uh, you have to stand for what's right, and regardless of who you have to stand against or with, for that matter, you have to stand uh, for what is uh, the truth and not compromise that in any way. And Paul said that's exactly what we did. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and when you think about this, that moment that's where the downfall starts or the downhill slide is the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a big compromise. But once the pattern usually is established. Yeah. yeah. Usually it isn't. It's usually, it's usually a small thing. And I think what's so interesting about what you just said is that <clears throat> what, what did Paul do to Timothy in Acts 16? He did circumcise yeah. him. So I think we could conclude circumcision is it necessarily a big deal 
in, in the literal sense of it, you know, Paul does say, Timothy, you should, you know, you should be circumcised. Um, but the idea of compromising that it's a part of doctrine is the idea. Not that somebody might be circumcised is not a problem. It's the idea of the compromise that's the problem. Yeah, there seems to be a difference between one who would choose to do that so that he would have opportunities to preach the gospel so that there would not be controversy uh, and and being willing to do that. And the person who says, you must do this or we're not going to accept you, uh, there I think is the, is the difference that Brian pointed out very well. And I guess I just restated, so. Well, okay, I'm going to throw something else to think about. Based on Acts 16, what Brian referenced there with Paul and Timothy, we often look at Paul as being a very strong, established apostle, unwavering, unfaltering. But we know Paul had to work daily to keep himself, um, he had to buffet his body daily, lest he also become a castaway. Could it be that the case in Acts 16 was Paul giving in just a little bit? For that moment, maybe if you were to talk to Paul later, he might have reminisced and said, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I don't know. I'm not trying to impugn Paul at all, but is it as perfect of a decision as many times we, we want to look at? I think that the the nature of being this kind of evangelist on the Great Commission, and I, mm. and I may say something controversial here that I see the Great Commission a little bit more uniquely than some do, because the Great Commission is to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so for Paul, who's on the Great Commission, he's obligated to go to the Jew first, to go to the synagogue first. And um, to bring in this man who's Jewish and uncircumcised, you know, because Paul or Timothy is Jewish. Titus is not Jewish, but Timothy is Jewish, or at least his mother is Jewish, um, is going to disable fulfilling that commission. Now, Titus isn't on that same pattern. Titus, you know, we meet Titus most thoroughly in the book of Titus, where he's the evangelist working on the island of Crete, um, you know, that that we have a little bit of a different scenario there. But Timothy is one of Paul's fellow travelers and has that, you know, to the Jew first uh, opportunity with Paul. And I think that there's something a little bit different there, too. So I think it's an interesting yeah. question, and I, I think it's a legitimate question. I, I think Paul probably was doing what he had to do. Um, and it might have been a conversation of saying, hey, Timothy, if you really want to be with me, you're going to have to get circumcised because we're going places where just to get in the door. Yeah. You're, that's a you're good point. Have to be in this position. Yeah. For the, all for the good of being able to teach the brethren in that case, not so much buckling under what the Judaizing Christians wanted them to do, but so they could accept them through the door and have an opportunity to, to teach them. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. Well, I take back what I said, sort of, I mean, it's just a wondering. <laughs> But since Brian made a good point and said it might be controversial, you can email Brian. Send it to brian at truthfactor.com. Actually, if you have any thoughts or questions for us or maybe uh, disagree with something we say, you can email it. Send your thoughts to questions at truthfactorlive.com, and we'll try to monitor that. And and if it if it pertains to our study we just had, we'll be happy to bring it in to next week. If it's a question you'd like to have answered, we'll do our best to bring it into our next study and answer that as well. You can also write Tom at truthfactor.com, Paul at truthfactor.com, Brendan, all that's there available too. All right, let's see. We had one more comment real quick. I think I've got it called up here. Uh, coming in from Caleb. 
Let's see. He says, if the Bible was fake, you would not see the stand for God's word. They would have just made the choices easy. I think that's a good point. They're talking about reading through, kind of a side thought here. I think it's a good point. Reading through this, if the Bible was something created by man, would man have written this type of narrative, you know, regarding what we're looking at here? Or would man be posed to have made it worse or maybe to have not even mentioned it at all? It's just interesting point, Caleb. Appreciate that. All right, let's see. Let's go ahead. We've got a few minutes remaining. It's just now 1147. Let's go ahead and read the next section, starting with verse 6, and let's read down to verse 10. And Tom, would you mind reading that for us, please? All right. Okay, so it says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised, or, or they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which we also were eager to do. Okay. Or which Let's I see. also was eager to do. Says. All right, so let's just come back here to this start of this section here. So a little bit we'll talk about as we go through here, especially in regards to uh, when the events as stated here in chapter 2 took place. You kind of saw a little um, point towards that. Let's see. There we go. All right, so Tom, he says here in verse 6, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference. Um, he says, for those who seem to be nothing, added nothing to me. Um, but on the contrary, when they saw the gospel uncircumcised had been committed to me as a gospel circumcised Peter, and he continues there. Well, what, what's his point there? Or what do you think his point is there with that statement in verse 6? But for those who seem to be something, added nothing to me. It's a poor way I've read that. I kind of broke up the thought too much, but. Right. I think that's an extremely powerful point. You know, the, the the first point that Paul makes is he's going to the leaders, you know, you know, which we've already kind of discussed. Those who seem to be something, uh, you know, those with those within the congregation who had influence. And he makes the point, you know, that that doesn't matter as, as far as the truth of the gospel. It doesn't matter how much influence they have. But he goes on and he makes that point. They added nothing to me. And what Paul is saying, you know, here, I was explaining to them what I have been teaching to the Gentiles. I was explaining what the Lord has told me to do in going to the Gentiles, the gospel that he has given to me. And you know what? They did not add anything to what I had already learned. Matter of fact, it was the exact same gospel. That's, uh, I think that's the very point that Paul is driving home to them. You know, I mean, uh, sure, there was the questions, you know, like in, in Acts 15, or uh, no, better yet, Acts 11. After the conversion of Cornelius, there was the questions. Why did you go to the Gentiles? 
and Peter had to explain it to them. And when he explained it, they said, okay, yeah, and they, or actually, they didn't just say, okay, they said, great, fantastic, then God has included the Gentiles. I see the same type of an idea here, but the point is, is you might say, um, uh, I've heard someone describing this, because this is a great passage dealing with evidences, uh, I mean, that they get together, when Paul finally gets together with the brethren in Jerusalem, they compare notes, and you know what, we're not contradicting each other. They added nothing to what I was already teaching. Uh, and so we, we're on the same page. We have been on the same page. It's just I'm going to the Gentiles, and you all have been dealing with primarily a Jewish audience. So that's the difference, and they accepted it Okay. easily. Yeah. All right, good point. Good point there. Um, and we'll build on that here in just a second. Um, I saw I missed a comment that Gregor made while ago. Brian, you want to bring that in? Yeah, Gregor says, uh, Timothy's circumcision, a great example of how important accepting local culture in proclaiming the gospel. The challenge is to know the difference between cultural differences and scriptural issues. Um, that was just a really neat comment. Yeah, it really was. But what were you going to say, Brian, or were you... Um, I was going to make a, just a different point. I was going to say that there's an important idea that we need to understand for verse 7, that Paul is not saying in verse 7 there are two Gospels. Um, and, and this is, of course, the theme of Galatians. There's only one Gospel, um, and there isn't another Gospel. And if there is, then you're accursed. Uh, some, there are a lot of people that think that there were two Gospels, that there was a Gospel to the Jews and a Gospel to the Gentiles. Um Oftentimes you hear this among people who don't believe in baptism. They'll say, well, Peter preached baptism to the Jews. That was their gospel. And then uh, Paul preached grace uh, and saved by faith only to the Gentiles. And that's the gospel we're under today. Paul isn't saying there are two gospels here. In fact, he goes on in the next verse to explain what he's saying, that God is working or the gospel is working through Peter to be effective to the Jews and through Paul to be effective to the Gentiles. Not that there are two Gospels. He says he's talking about the idea of the effectiveness of the Gospel and the effectiveness of the working of the Gospel and how they're each effective, or we might say more effective, in those particular areas. So it's important for us to kind of pause for a second and clarify. You, you'll hear it all your life that, well, you know, Paul preached one thing to one group, Peter preached another thing to another group. Um, I, I've, I've, met, I've met brethren that have uh, said very things like that. And we need to be very clear that there, there really is only one gospel. Galatians 1, that's the big idea of Galatians 1. There's only one gospel. So that concept is important because it's trying to tell us that, you know, we don't, um, Paul may be more effective in preaching to Gentiles and Peter may be more effective in preaching to Jews, but that's that's all that he's saying. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Brian, bring, uh, bring in, just kind of mention the Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Hey, that's right. That's right. You know, where he's going to say, uh, we're all one, not not male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. It's all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And not only is it all one, it's for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All right. So let's throw something else out there. Great, great point. Great point. I, I agree. I think it's very well stated there. Verse 9. Is this the same instance that he referenced earlier? When he talks about those of reputation, where he says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, 
or could this be a, just a different visit to Jerusalem? I think I think it's the same one. I think that okay. uh, I think he's using the term their reputation, and then he says they are pillars. So he's, yeah. I think he's talking about the same time. Yeah, you know, those... and, and tied to that, right. you know, uh, when we talked about in the verse six, they added nothing to me. Mm-hmm. In verse nine, I added nothing to them. That's you a know, good point. We, we discussed it together. Yeah. That we should. Go, yes, right. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you read through, you read through a letter many, many times. Okay. But still sometimes certain things you overlook. And, and in this case, going through this line by verse by verse, I hadn't really made that connection that if this is the same visit, then answer the question, who were the influential ones that he went to first privately? Verse nine, at least would have included three of them or told us who they were being James, Peter, and John. Very interesting. And that's the Apostle John at that is our assumption and understanding. Any thoughts? All right. Um, Paul, what about verse 10? They desired only Uh, that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. You know, sometimes uh, I, I, I was thinking about that, and sometimes we can become... Uh, so tied up in our little controversies and uh, disagreements and, and troubles that we forget, you know, something that's that's uh, a fundamental part of the Christian life, and that is to uh, be thinking about those who have uh, different kinds of needs. And maybe he's thinking about the poor in regard to uh, benevolence and, and like Paul wrote to the Corinthians about and going and, and taking care of some of their needs, or uh, maybe there, there are other things. We already mentioned Agabus, the prophet, who talked about a, a famine coming on. Uh, but certainly these doctrinal issues need to be resolved. But in the resolving of them, we need to make sure that we don't uh, forget to think about needy brethren, and in our individual lives, thinking about the needy who are around us and how we can help and show kindness and compassion and care for them. Um, and, and that's something that I think Paul is saying that in resolving whatever these problems, these disagreements or uh, coming to an understanding of the truth on these matters, uh, there's something that we all shared, we were all united in. Uh, there was no disagreement that we should always be thinking of the poor and how to take care of them. You know, that's a good point. It reminds me a good bit of the law and part of the issue with Israel and Judah was how they treated the poor. You know, so that's been a concern of the Lord for a long time, as long as it's done with them. And, and that does open up a couple questions, the poor that he's talking about. We see examples of benevolence on a local level, but even then the responsibility as individual Christians too. Yeah, I was thinking about, there's, there is a passage in, um, I, could, I could pull it up pretty quick, but we know that Sodom had some, Sodom and Gomorrah had some uh, incredibly immoral problems in their society, sins uh, of homosexuality and, and more than that. But one of the things that's mentioned of them is that they were, um, 
and I forget which prophet it is, but it talks about you are like your sister, uh, Sodom. Is that Ezekiel? Ezekiel. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ezekiel, you're like your, your sister Sodom. Uh, and it talks about their mistreatment of the poor. They're, uh, living in luxury while you let others, uh, suffer. And I, I think that's interesting that in a city that was so wicked and so many things could be pointed out. And certainly, uh, I'm not undermining the fact that they had that immorality in their, in their city. But one of the things that the prophet pulls out, and of course, by inspiration, uh, is that they were uh, mean. Uh, they, they, they lived in luxury and let others suffer. Yeah. So I don't know. But uh, it's Ezekiel 16. I was looking for the specific reference there, but that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'll just be real, real quick. Mm -hmm. I know there are some who say, well, the, the sin of Sodom was not their immoral conduct. Yes, it certainly was. But in addition to that, another aspect of their immoral conduct was uh, their uh apathy toward the poor yeah. i think i stepped on uh brian there uh, in his comment and i apologize for that no okay no you're all good yeah okay. i think it's a valid point mm -hmm. um i just wanted to bring up something and caleb brought up a comment in the in the uh chat youtube chat and it's actually similar to maybe it's similar to the comment that i wanted to bring up because caleb's comment is how does this fit into him bringing money to the church in jerusalem which which is as i've said i'm thinking maybe this is acts 11 and they're they taken up a collection and they're bringing money to the, to the saints there um and caleb what i wanted to say actually speaks to your comment um that the poor based on context and inference are almost certainly the poor saints in jerusalem um in other words this is something that we've all probably talked about many times that the church doesn't have a benevolent authority to help all poor people you know we do personally galatians 6 10 says but the church is uh, only authorized to bring that aid to those who were saints. And so one important idea that I do is I often tie Acts 11 to this and say, look, Acts 11 says that that collection was taken up for the saints in Judea, the impoverished saints in Judea. So when he says to remember the poor, based on that, that tying that back to Acts chapter 11, that almost certainly seems to be uh, a statement that's reminding us uh, or helping us to draw the conclusion or once more just talking about poor saints that that was the the need uh not to take away anything from what paul said or anybody else has said it's just uh kind of to clarify too that yeah. if this is church you know the money in acts 11 we're told what the money in acts 11 was about it was about the needy saints and so it's it's worth focusing in on that and making sure we understand this in no way authorizes uh, the church to be just in a generic helping helping the brethren. Caleb brings in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, another, another of those passages that tells us that that collection is taken up for saints. Um, yeah. at 2 Corinthians 8, 9, um, you know, again, when we see that collection taken up, it's, it's identified with the saints. So this verse, uh, verse 10 is almost certainly uh, the, the poor are the saints. Certainly, I, I agree entirely with that, and I appreciate the clarification. That's a good point. Um, also, Gregor, I'm going to bring his comment in real quick, and then we will be done. Gregor says, and this goes back to our just earlier discussion. Paul said, one faith, one baptism. This goes Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. This goes back to our discussion about whether or not there were two Gospels. Clearly, there weren't. There was only one. Yeah. Very good point. Very good point. 
All right, so much more we could talk about, but it is now 12.03. So it's time for us to end our study today. Um, gentlemen, any final thoughts about this part? First 10 verses of chapter 2 of Galatians that we've covered today. No? All right, let's plan the next Thursday to resume our study with Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. We'll continue there in looking at Paul's letter to the churches, the Christians there throughout the region of Galatia. We'd like to thank you for joining us today. We have several people who have been able to join us. And whether you've been able to comment or just to, to be a part of our study by listening and following along, we really appreciate your interest in these spiritual matters. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. If you were viewing this at a later point, well, thank you for your interest as well. If you do have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to contact us. Send them to questions at truthfactorlive.com, or you can write us individually as you see on the screen there. Just put our first name. Tom is the short version of Thomas. Go Tom at truthfactor.com and we will get those questions. We'll be happy to, to get back with you and try to bring them into our study if possible there. All right, well, that's all. So we'll be back here again next Thursday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Daylight Time as we continue our study of the book of Galatians, factoring the truth into our lives and hopefully into your life as well. Thank you so much. And we'll see everyone next week. Have a great week.